Technology to make our lives more convenient could be used for more nefarious purposes. This is Brief Before Impact. Hey, welcome everyone. I am Matt Parker and thank you for joining me. Uh, Today's brief discusses how the advancement of certain technologies is meant to make our lives more convenient, but I'm asking the question if there could be an underlying threat to that advancement of technology. I'm going to be focusing on specifically uh, palm scanners that are now popping up at Whole Food grocery stores around the country and uh, other Amazon type stores. And I'm going to be highlighting some recent data and reporting on how the U.S. government buys data from technology companies, telecommunication companies, as well as the monitoring of social media. I'm gonna, you can't help but talk about China in any of these episodes, it seems like. And lastly, just the collaboration that we have witnessed as Americans between big technology companies, as well as the government in collaboration on kind of determining the political narrative in our country and why I think that's important. But before we get into it, let me take a quick ad break and then we will get to work. Welcome back, everyone. So, like I mentioned, I'm going to focus on this technology I've seen at Whole Foods grocery stores, which is like a palm data scanner, meaning you put your palm over this device, it recognizes your uh, fingerprints, and then connects that to a Amazon account that you pay for your groceries, okay? So, I'm just gonna, let me give you a little more details about what this is and kind of where I see, at least, articulate my concern. Uh, this is according to TechCrunch.com. Amazon is Amazon One is part of the company's mission to use contactless technology that makes it faster to pay. The tech works like this: users visit a kiosk or a point of sale station at participating locations to link their palm and payment card to the service. Then all they have to do during checkout process is hover their hand over a scanner to complete the transaction. Amazon One creates palm signatures using machine learning to identify customers. While the kiosk takes a picture of a user's palm, the company says it doesn't store the image there, but instead encrypts it and sends it to a server for matching. As Amazon customers continue giving up their data for more convenient shopping experience, concerns increase about privacy. If you use a face ID or fingerprint scanners, you already use biometric data. However, it's likely... Some users aren't okay with the idea that Amazon One may allow the company to track your movements. Even a group of U.S. senators expressed their concerns about the palm scanning system. Senators Klobuchar, Cassidy, Ossoff wrote in an open letter to Amazon Chief Executive Andy Jassy, quote, in contrast with biometric systems like Apple Face ID and Touch ID or Samsung Pass, which store biometric information information on a user's device, Amazon One reportedly uploads biometric information to the cloud, raising unique security risk, end quote. Last year, Amazon partnered with a ticketing company, AXS, with plans to implement Amazon One at Denver, Colorado's Red Rocks Amphitheater. Shortly after that announcement, hundreds of music fans, artists, human rights groups demanded Red Rock drop the technology and ban all biometric surveillance tools like palm scans and facial recognition. They even signed a letter citing concerns about Amazon sharing palm print data with government agencies and potential hackers stealing from data from the cloud. So this is a quick overview of that technology I'm talking about. I was picking up groceries today and I've seen it before and I'm like, 
man, this has me a little bit nervous. You know, I go in there, I pay with my debit card, which is linked to my account, which is linked to my name and social and all that kind of at the bank. It's all tied together. I'm very on the grid. I don't buy things with cash and wear it, you know, and wear a, a false nose and a, and a baseball cap everywhere I go to. So, you know, any, t- uh, any surveillance cameras don't recognize who I am. Of course not. I'm not trying to say that technology that makes transactions, like at the grocery store, for example, faster is a bad thing. What concerns me is the ties to big tech and its power and its, its ability to harness data and then a government collaborating with technology companies to use that data for their own purposes. I'm going to attempt to tie this this thought together the way I see this this one thing at a grocery store and where my mind immediately goes to. Because I think you'll see as I lay out some of this reporting that this isn't as far-fetched as it could be. So I went into some re- reporting from the ACLU, okay, whose mandate is to basically protect um, your the, the the human your rights of privacy, speech, et cetera. They're famous for um, ensuring that groups, even the most uh, atrocious groups in the United States uh, society, have the right to say whatever they want to say. That's kind of their their thing, essentially. And they were talking about this a couple of years ago, on the issue of not just advertising companies buying um, tracking data from telecoms like AT&T or Sprint, but the federal government doing it as well. Uh, they highlighted this report back in 2020, and this is from Nathan Wessler. He was the deputy director of ACLU's uh, Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. <clears throat> and he wrote that the federal government is secretly purchasing and using our cell phone location information to locate and track people in the United States, including for inf- immigration enforcement. ACLU is suing to bring some much-needed transparency to these disturbing practices. The GPS chips in modern smartphones provide us with many conveniences, allowing apps on our phones to quickly map our location, provide weather updates, and more. But many of those apps don't keep our location information to themselves. Without users realizing it, apps regularly sell users' location information to other companies who use it for marketing and other purposes. Uh, In February, granted this is 2020, uh, the Wall Street Journal reported that this sensitive location data isn't just for sale for commercial entities but is also being purchased by the U.S. government agencies, including U.S. Immigrations and Customers Enforcement. That's ICE, if you've ever heard that name before. Uh, to locate and arrest immigrants. The journal identified one company, Vintel, that was selling access to a massive database to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, the Border Patrol, and ICE. Subsequent reporting has identified other companies selling access to similar databases to DHS and other agencies, including the U.S. military. These practices raise serious concerns that federal immigration authorities are evading Fourth Amendment protections for cell phone location information by paying for access instead of obtaining a warrant. There's even more reason for alarm when those agencies evade requests for information, including from U.S. senators about such practices. That's why today we ask the federal court to intervene in an order against Homeland Security, the Border Patrol, and ICE to release information about their purchase and use of precise cell phone location information. So, the ACLU, this is by by no means a right-wing organization, just FYI if you're not picking up on that one, that the fact is, in this example that they're highlighting, 
Border Patrol essentially is buying tracking information from cell phone companies in order to arrest uh, illegal immigrants. Okay, uh, you can certainly, if you're, I'm putting on my Intel hat, <laughs> makes total sense, of course you would. Why wouldn't you want to actually have the physical location of the people who illegally enter the country? Got it. This is pointing out, in my mind, I'm trying to connect the threads, right? It's the fact that telecommunication companies are selling this data to the government knowing that the government is doing this. Now, the question that comes to my mind is, do the telecoms company, is this merely a transfer of an asset and they get a dollar for an asset or are they ideologically aligned to the efforts of the Border Patrol? I don't really know. It's an open-ended question. I'm just thinking out loud. Why would they go and sell that data to the government knowing what the government is using for? And I'm not even saying the government is doing something wrong with it. It's just you gotta you got to think about things in that way. Like what, what makes one private organization, private sector business, sell data to a government entity for any reason or any cause? And then you have to start piecing it back together and how everything's going to be connected throughout this. So... We talked about Amazon's Palm Scanner and the security threats there with its data being uploaded to the cloud, which is um, up for potential hacking and theft of our data. Number two, looking how the government has a history of buying personal data, tracking information from private sector and telecommunication companies. Let's talk about social media. Obviously, this is the big one of the day. Uh, And this is just how the government has been monitoring social media. It's been going on for years at this point and what the problems we could see from that. And this is according to the Brennan Center of Justice. Law enforcement and intelligence agencies monitor social media uh, for purposes such as investigations, monitoring to detect threats, situational awareness, and immigration and travel screening. Okay, so those are a few reasons of why they might monitor social media. Again, putting them on intelligence, I'm like, yeah, that. Of course they would. That's how they would track live updates of people or groups that they're trying to, they feel that they need to investigate or at least monitor. How can the government's use of social media harm the people? So government, again, this is according to the Brennan Center of Justice. The government monitoring of social media can work to people's detriment in at least four ways. One, wrongly implicating an individual or group in criminal behavior based on their activity on social media. Number two, misinterpreting the meaning of social media activity, sometimes with severe consequences. Number three, suppressing people's willingness to talk or connect openly online. And lastly, invading individuals' privacies. Let's just dial these, tease these out a little bit more. So we're looking at the first, you know, assumed criminality, right? The government may use information from social media to label an individual or group as a threat including characterizing ordinary activity. It's like you're wearing a sneaker brand or you're making a common hand sign or social media connections as evidence of criminal or threatening behavior. For example, the NYPD wrongly arrested 19-year-old Jelani Henry for attempted murder, after which he was denied bail and jailed for over a year and a half, in large part because prosecutors thought that his likes and photos on social media proved he was a member of a violent gang. Okay. Second, mistaken judgments, right? So in, it can be difficult to accurately interpret online activity, and the repercussions can be severe. For example, in 2020, police in Wichita, Kansas, arrested a teenager on suspicion of inciting a riot based on a mistaken interpretation 
of his Snapchat post in which he was actually denouncing violence. You look at number three, the chilling effects, right? People are highly likely to censor themselves, or we've heard of this called self-censorship, when they think that they're being watched by the government. And this undermines everything from political speech to creativity and other forms of self-expression. Lastly, again, looking at just the loss of privacy. You know, a person's social media presence, what they're posting, their commenting, photos, and so forth, that can all reveal their ethnicity, their political views, uh, gender identity, sexual orientation, a whole bunch of things. And it really can reveal more than that person can intend. And between all four of these, in my personal view, it's the self-censorship that's one of the bigger issues. I think I heard a, a survey was taken in 2018 or 2020 of if you would be willing to tell your friends and family that, or your coworkers who you voted for, like in the one of those elections. It was like overwhelming, 68% or something of folks said that they wouldn't want to share that. Well, that's, that's frightening. This wasn't even a Republican or Democrat thing. This is just across the board, which means that people are, in my mind at least, so nervous about the backlash that they'll receive from their colleagues or their online friend groups about, oh, you voted for this person, you voted for that, that they're not even willing to do something and to just share who they voted for, which is which is really scary, frankly. And I think it's that kind of self-censorship or maybe you've got something really in your mind about a hot topic of the day. And if Twitter or another social media platform is like the public square and you don't have the courage to say it because you're you feel worried that you could maybe get fired or maybe looked down on by your colleagues or you know lose a relationship because you said something uh, that's not a good place to be right so these are some of the ways that the government's monitoring of social media can harm people so let's take this built up of the palm scanner from amazon how government buys data from telecom tom's companies how they're monitoring social media and look at the Chinese Communist Party. What, in fact, is going on in China when it comes to tracking people? Because this is really what's on my mind the most. You know, we're not talking about political narratives or news reports that didn't get promoted on some platform, but rather you and I being tracked by the government. So uh, this is according to uh, mindmatters.ai. Okay, so total surveillance has only been possible in the last 10 years as algorithms have become more sophisticated as sifting large data files. Of the world's 1 billion surveillance cameras that are in use, half are in China. So it's 500 million cameras for surveillance are in China alone. There's a billion in the whole world. Almost all those cameras are equipped with facial recognition software so that they can identify so that identity can be matched to an image on a camera at any time. Just to get an idea uh, of the amount of data that the country collects, here's some numbers, and this is from the Times reports, uh, just one by uh, bidding a document from the Fujian province. The contract is for a larger database to house facial images files. So in this amount of data that they reported on, one camera okay, stores 2,000 images of faces every day. These are stored up for six months. One camera. They've got 500 million in China. There are 7,000 cameras alone in Fujian, this province. That means that in any given time, the Fujian government database has 2.5 billion facial images on file. For comparison, the largest U.S. government database, which is ran by the Department of Homeland Security, 
houses 836 million facial images for the whole country. Fujian's 2.5 billion facial images are just for one province in Southeast China. So most countries collect some form of biometric data, whether it's fingerprints or DNA, from people who are arrested or are on suspicion of committing a crime. In the U.S., the collection of biometric data is uh, ethically contentious because of laws governing privacy, informed consent, um, search and seizure, all of which temper the extent of data collection. For example, several states have been called to dispose of DNA samples collected from infants at birth. However, the Chinese government foregoes restraint in the name of stability and security. Our voice recognition software allows officials to record audio with a 300-foot radius of a surveillance camera, which can then be matched to the speaker's image. Think about this for a moment. Everything you say, every action you take, from walking to picking up a piece of uh, a newspaper from Stan, from spitting your gum into the garbage, that would all be recorded and on file if you were in China. If you were within 300 feet of surveillance camera, there's 500 million or in that country. If you're 300 feet from one of those cameras, you're, anything you said could be recorded and tied back to you. What, it doesn't matter what it is. Everything. That is so frightening on so many levels to me. Now, we, we have the benefit of living in a Western democracy. We don't live in this kind of authoritarian country where this, kind of, this data is used against its citizens. And I've talked about that a dozen times in the past. So let's kind of connect all these dots here. I've kind of built up for us to understand how here in the United States, we've got private technology companies with extraordinary capabilities for biometric data. We have a history of the government buying data from the private sector. We have a history of the government monitoring social media for a bunch of reasons. Then we juxtapose ourselves over to China and how they monitor their citizens, okay? Let's cap this off here on how in the past, in the most recent past, through the the recent upload of data from uh, the inner, inner workings of Twitter in the last few years, how we understand how our own government has been working with big tech companies in the to determine the political narrative going on in the country, okay? This is according to uh, johnlock.org. And in this reporting, it highlights that uh, Mark Hemingway of The Federalist, who highlights a strong link between big tech companies and the federal government's intelligence apparatus. And he writes that according to the latest drop of Twitter files from Michael Schellenberger, as, quote, as of 2020, there were so many former FBI employees working at Twitter that they had created their own private Slack channel and a crib sheet to onboard new FBI arrivals. End quote. It appears that Twitter still has 14 employees on the payroll who worked at the FBI and CIA. Now, the problem isn't just confined to Twitter. Uh, my colleague and Federalist contributor, Ben Weingarten, recently wrote an article for the New York Post titled Inside Revolving Door Between Democratic Deep State and Big Tech. In addition to covering what was happening at Twitter, Weingarten details a broader number of suspicious links between Silicon Valley and U.S. intelligence agencies. Given the near constant string of deep state scandals and social media censorship we've endured in recent years, a big question we should all be trying to answer right now is, what exactly are all these spooks doing at tech companies? By the way, spooks is another word for spy. Just, just a little street slang there for you. So far, the answer appears to be, they're 
almost certainly up to no good. After the first batch of Twitter files dropped, it was revealed that Elon Musk fired Twitter Deputy General Counsel James Baker. Prior to going to work at Twitter, Baker was a top lawyer at the FBI from 2014 to 2017. In that capacity, he played a significant role in shepherding the FBI's baseless and illegal Russiagate investigation. In fact, it's probably safe to assume one of the reasons Baker exited the FBI was to dodge any accountability for the FBI's reckless and politically motivated attempt to investigate the President of the United States. Twitter was a pretty soft landing. Or at least it was until it was revealed that Baker, who was still employed at Twitter as a few weeks ago, got fired after he intercepted the internal company communications Musk was giving to journalists Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss to expose the censorship and misdeeds of the company's previous management. So to give a little more context uh, to that reporting from Mark Hemingway, it's that, and if you haven't seen this, long story short, Elon Musk bought Twitter, looked inside what was going on, and said, whoa, Twitter and its execs were working hand-in-hand with the FBI and the intelligence community, and now he's just opened all that up. And he's Elon Musk has given that reporting over to a couple of what I would call unbiased journalists, still honest journalists, uh, Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss, uh, just to bring that out into the light. So this is recent, and you're familiar of all the reports that go back to the 2020 election of how of the Hunter Biden laptop story got squashed, and it was predominantly because the intelligence community was telling big tech like Twitter and Facebook and et cetera that the Russians were creating misinformation, and it was all around this time that the Biden laptop story came out. Matter of fact, Twitter, um, if I'm not mistaken, because I don't want to say removed, but I'm trying to remember the exact wording for the New York Post on their Twitter page. Basically, they shut down the New York Post ability to spread that story. That was the Hunter Biden laptop story. So you remember all that going on? So this just reiterates this: the, high, the highest levels of government and the highest levels of big tech working together to sway the, the minds of the American people around a, a political election. Okay. Now, how does this all tie back? Because I've talked about China, social media, the government buying data. I'm at the grocery store. I see a palm scanner at Whole Foods just trying to make transactions a little bit easier and faster for their customers. It's it's today, this is not a problem, that your palm data, if you so choose to use it, is now being uploaded to the cloud. But if you could fast forward in time and look at an example like China, what's going on there, of how... Even in this country, with the wrong people in power at the wrong time, say another catastrophe like a uh, a global pandemic takes place. We've seen what governments, including our own, will do to its citizens in the name of, say, public health. What will it take? How how much fear has to exist for the government to rely on its big technology uh, compatriots to work together? against the freedoms that you and I hold so dear. Because in their minds, the executives at big tech companies, those who are elected uh, officials or even the unelected bureaucracy, they believe they know best for the 330 plus million Americans in this country. And they're willing to work together and cross boundaries and certainly live in the, the gray of ethics in order to do so. 
this is what's on my mind when I see like a palm scanner at Whole Foods. It's not, oh, that's a quick way to buy my groceries. No, it's how much or how much longer or how what kind of bad event has to take place before that data I say I'm not allowed just to use my debit card or I'm not allowed to pay cash. I have to do it with my palm scanner. I'm not given another option or I can't buy groceries. And how long before the government mandates that? All these kind of things go through my mind. And again, I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist of any kind. I'm just pointing out how one thing slowly leads to another. I think it's these the changes in our behaviors of citizens. Doesn't It's not a 180 overnight. It's gradual. It's gradual. It's gradual. Things happen over time. And if we're not aware of them as citizens, if we don't decide, just like these folks at in Denver, Colorado said, no, Amazon, you cannot partner with this amphitheater. If we don't have the, the courage to push back on certain things, or at least if we're not even aware of them, how, how can we do any good to protect ourselves and protect our privacy or just any of the rights that we care so deeply about? So hope you enjoyed this episode. I really find this subject in this material fascinating. It's always on my mind. And as always, I hope you are picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker. This is Brief Before Impact.